I'm going to preach a message entitled, Fear Not, I Am. We're in week two of our study in the book of Revelation. Will you please stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? Last week we covered Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 8. Today we will finish out chapter 1, part 2 of the of this message series, really, I have the same basic thoughts as we unpack the second part of chapter 1. So this is verses 9 through 20 of Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. His right hand, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thanks be to God. Lord, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. That's beyond my thoughts or our familiarities with you and with your word. As we sit in this sanctuary and as I pray to you these words, Jesus, you're seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father in glory, in the midst of the Holy Spirit with you in presence, and you're in glory. You're going to come again to burn your adversaries with judgment. 
And at the same time, where you're seated, you look down on us in this moment with tenderness and compassion, though we have all been a part of a rebellion against you. And Lord, this is a great mystery. The mystery of your compassion and your mercy that don't take away at all from your overwhelming glory is is perhaps greater a mystery than the seven stars and the seven lampstands. Lord, you've already revealed those things. And Lord, what you've revealed to us in the mercy you give to people who call upon your name is a deep well, the bottom of which we cannot tap. And I pray that today it would spring forth with new power and understanding and revelation and cause us to see you differently and to live with great freedom and to bring life and to conquer death. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I pray that God would help you to put on the altar probably the, th- the thing that keeps you from knowing Jesus often, or if you know him, keep you from knowing him more deeply and accurately. And most often for all of us, the thing that prevents us from knowing anything is what we think we know. And so my prayer is that you would put on the altar, maybe not, not completely blank it out in your head as none of us can, but put on the altar of God, hold out to him with open hands what you think you know about Jesus so that you could be amazed by who he really is. As I said last week, this is the first time we as a church in our 10-year history have preached through the book of Revelation. It is, it is God's grace to me to take me deeply into these things in ways that I, it's just not my money zone. It's not, it's not something that I would say, okay, I'm going to preach Revelation now. But like most good things that have come in my life, it's other people that mentor me, that influence me to do things I don't want to do sometimes. We're preaching through this series alongside our sister church, our Every Nation Church called Mosaic. And so we're doing this in tandem with Mosaic. This week, I'm going to preach the, the second half of a chapter one sermon duet, if you will, last week to this week. I'll finish chapter one preaching through the text we just read together. Next week, Morgan Stevens, the lead pastor from Mosaic, is going to come down here and take us into chapter two and beyond. So I'm very excited about Revelation. Our series title is Revelation, Hope for the Future for Today. I'm going to share with you again our big idea for today. If you leave with nothing else, and maybe you didn't get it last week or you did, but we need to hear it again this week, it's this. Our greatest hope for today and tomorrow is found in who God is, who he was, and who he always will be. If you want to live a stable an unconquerable life, you can do nothing better in that quest than to know deeply and more deeply the unconquerable God. 
who always has been, always will be, and is unconquerable and powerful. And to know him for who he is, is the greatest thing you can do to grow in your own stability. So last week we pulled out, I threw light on one major attribute about who God is and who he always has been that we see in chapter one. And I'm going to cover the other three today. But the first one again is number one, God is unchanging. This is what we saw from the first eight verses of chapter one of Revelation. God is unchanging. Verse four, just to remind you, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. God doesn't change. We change. We get better. We get worse. Sometimes we get worse thinking we're getting better by improving upon ourselves, but we change. We have often no convincing grid to understand how our change can be measured. No good grid. But God doesn't improve. He doesn't progress because he never has had to. He's always been perfect and glorious. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whether you are, uh, is, is just high on life or down in a pit, Jesus is always Jesus. He's always on his throne. He's always glorious. He's always merciful. He's always all these things we see through grace. We get to see in the book of Revelation, for instance. Our greatest hope for today and tomorrow is in who God is and who he was and who he always will be. Number one, God is unchanging. Number two thing that we see from this text God is terrifying. (coughs) Stick with me in this. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It says, I turn and one like a son of man. Now, we need a little context to understand where son of man comes from. In the New Testament, there are many ways that Jesus relates to himself, titles he gives himself. In the book of Matthew in particular, this is the most common title, son of man. It does not simply mean he was a human. Uh, From our perspective, we might read that, oh, he's son of man, I guess that means he's a human. No, this is a specific title that's taken in particular from from the book of Daniel. Uh, Sorry, the book of Daniel and a lot of different minor prophets speaking of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the the great and terrible day of the Lord that, that they prophesied that there will be an end to all the evil and to all the the rebellion against God and all the murder and rape and and all the the minimizing of it and the excuses and and the the ways that we try to 
to, in our minds, pervert what is true and real. And all the evil existential things in the world, there will be an end. There will be be a great and terrible day of the Lord. The prophet Amos, Zephaniah, Daniel in particular, these men wrote down things that the Lord told them to write down about a sure and final day where judgment and fire would be brought onto the earth by a God of justice executed by this person that they they called the Son of Man. So when you hear the Son of Man, and when John saw one like a Son of Man, he was seeing similar pictures to how he's described in Daniel. In fact, these attributes that he, he does his best to describe the indescribable, any one of these characteristics in this little passage is enough to terrify you just in isolation. Okay, so like, I, I grew up in 4,000 feet elevation in central Oregon. And I had a few moments that were kind of scary where I got lost in like a flurry of a snowstorm and I could see nothing but like the intense whiteness. I was scared out of my mind. Well, John says that was just Jesus' hair. His hair was that. Just snowstorm. And then his eyes are like fire. I mean, I think Hollywood could try to pull off something like this, but would be left lacking. Eyes like fire. I mean, just one of these things would be terrifying. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. I think this also harkens back to the book of Daniel when King Nebuchadnezzar threw the servants of the Lord into the the bright and hot furnace and said, one like a son of man was walking with them. And he comes out glorious and protects them from the fire And so John, fast forward, sees that same son of man and his feet have just been purified by this furnace and he's ready to make war. One like his feet were like burnished bronze. His voice was like the sound of many waters. I mean, you could sit all day and try to imagine what that's like. And it's still a mystery. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. I can't hold a hot pocket in my right hand. This dude's holding stars in his right hand. We know from the end of the chapter that they're angels. Now, if you look in the Bible and see what angels do, I mean, I heard one pastor say, we we wrongly picture in the West God and angels and whatever. Like, there's someone said, uh, if you saw an angel and you think an angel is like the little babies with diapers on, you're mistaken, because if you actually saw an angel, you're the one who would need a diaper. <laughs> but Jesus is holding seven of them in his hand. This is an immense, terrifying, glorious being holding the seven stars. His mouth comes two sharp ed- uh, sharp-edged swords from his mouth. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a glorious, terrifying being. This isn't just a myth or a picture. This is who Jesus is. This is more real than our anxieties. This is more real than your past or your current struggles. This is who Jesus is and was and always will be. He's terrifying. I was told 
wrongly to go to this movie that wasn't, was not supposed to be terrifying this year. And uh, spoiler alert, The Quiet Place is totally terrifying. My wife and I went to this movie. The, we like John Krasinski. We, lo- we love The Office. We go to this movie. We're like, okay, well, it's just kind of cute. I'm sorry. I don't know what your paradigm for scary is, but these little animal things that were like eating everybody up, they were scary. I was scared. Now, when you look at them, spoiler, you look at them, they're kind of ugly looking things like, man, that's terrifying. And you look at them, you're a little disturbed. Well, Jesus, you couldn't even look at him. I'm going to try looking into the sun. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. I have to assume that if these beings from this movie were to encounter Jesus, they would run away like a bunch of little Boston Terriers because Jesus is glorious and terrifying. Now, why do I use a word like that? I want to be careful, but I think I, think I chose an okay word. God is terrifying. Now, you might, not, you might say, well, how's that supposed to bring hope, even if you're right, Pastor Peter? How's that supposed to bring hope to people about finding hope in God and who he was and is and always will be? He, he's terrifying? That's, that's kind of a contradiction. Well, I think we need a little bit more context about the writer of this letter and the audience So let's go back to the first verse of our passage. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, everyone say tribulation, Tribulation. and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So he says tribulation. He says kingdom in contrast with another kingdom that they were suffering tribulation under and in patient endurance. So I have problems in my life. It's called tribulation. But I know of a kingdom that's greater than this kingdom here that's causing me problems here. And and therefore, I have patient endurance. Where do I find this patient endurance? Do I think happy thoughts? Do, Do I remember that I am special? I am special? No. I have this hope in Jesus I, John, I am only your brother, John says. And I'm only your partner in tribulation, in kingdom, in patient endurance because I am in Jesus. Now he says, I was on the island of Patmos. And he gives a reason why he was there. He was not on vacation on this island. He says, I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of God. Of Jesus. Now, let me give you a little background for why he would say, I was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, John ministered in for decades. This was the, the, the man who Jesus walked with. He ministered in modern-day Turkey, what was known then as Asia Minor. These cities that are described, some of which still exist in modern-day Turkey, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, these seven churches uh, were not just, in this, in this book, as we read it today, they're representative, as we'll see next week, of the modern church at large. But there were also actual places that John had ministry in. John 
was successful in the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He laid down his life and suffered for the ministry of the word that would, would come into someone's life and they would receive new life because of this, this mystery of this great and glorious and merciful Jesus. And John preached to them and made disciples and planted churches and raised up leaders. And he was one of the most famous the most anointed, the most powerful men. There, I know from church history that people would just try to get in the room with this man and, and just feel the presence of God that emanated from him because there was so much power on this man's life for preaching, for healing, for demonstrating the things that he was showing from another kingdom were manifest subverting this kingdom today. He was influential. In fact, they called him the, the elder. At the end of his life, by the time he wrote this, he was 80, maybe 90 years old, really old man. They called him at this point the elder. It was like bigger than any title that we could come up with today. And yet the more he grew in renown among other men, the more fascinated he was that he was ever that little boy who Jesus saved in the first place. This is the John who wrote this book. He referred to himself towards the end of his life when he wrote the book of John, the gospel account. Now, he wrote it largely because there's so many things written about Jesus. The whole earth could not fill how glorious he is. So let me give you some more. You know about Matthew and Mark and Luke, I assume, but let me give you some more. And one of the most amazing things that he saw himself not as the elder, but he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He could never get over how this glorious being loved him. And he bore fruit. He abided in Jesus, and he bore fruit. And his fruit was seen as a threat to the Roman Empire, this kingdom, because the kingdom of God was subverting from the inside out the kingdom of Rome and never had to lift a sword to fight anyone else. They wanted to silence him. Roman officials tried to beat him down to silence him. At one point, they just decided, this old man will not shut up. Let's boil him in water and kill him. Well, they did part of that. They boiled him in water. But for some reason, some, some church history says it was miraculous, but he survived the boiling in water. And I have to assume that the man after that was crippled and suffered from the pain in his skin the rest of his life and still wouldn't shut up. So they just shut him away to a, an island where he would never be heard from again, right? But when the enemy thinks maybe he's gotten rid of you, God can still speak to you. And there is, just like Psalm 139, no height, no, no, no pit of hell that I could, I could be that, that you won't find me there. And God speaks to him this message to this man who is in tribulation. He suffered under the hand of Rome, and he's writing a letter to people who also were suffering under the hand of Rome. Now, I'm getting to that question, why can we receive hope from a God who's terrifying? John loved these people who tortured him. He was never a victim. He never complained. He never went on cable news to complain about all the things he's suffering. It should be just different. No, he died for these people. He laid down his life and preached the gospel for these people. He was victorious, though he was being tortured. Why? Because he believed that God is, 
He was and he always will be this God who mysteriously revealed himself in glory to him. And he wrote this letter to a church who for hundreds of years banked on this promise as more real than their suffering. For 300 years at least, the church grew and exploded. And every bit as much as their influence grew, so did their suffering. And they could trust in the middle of their suffering and their growth that God is my vindicator and God is this glorious and terrifying being. And because God will come to judge, I don't have to judge these people. I can actually do this crazy thing that Jesus taught and love my enemies. Because he is going to judge, I don't have to. Jesus is going to make this right in the end. Now, imagine we could airdrop our modern, western, false, watered-down reductions for who Jesus is and just drop it into a second or third century Christian. Just imagine the absurdity of this, this person. They were being fed to lions. It says the gladiators, we know from church history, got so tired of killing Christians in the stadium, in the Colosseum. There's just too many Christians. We can't kill them all. The animals were being tired out from how many Christians the Romans were having them kill. Imagine going to one of these Christians who lost their families with the, the Jesus that we often in, in our day think about. And they were to say to you, hey, hey, is God going to make all this right? And, and what if we were to say, well, slow down there. Slow down there. Maybe what's right to you isn't what's right to that other person. Don't judge because, you know, that's, no one judges or something. And God doesn't, I don't think. Don't, don't, don't call, maybe what they think is right is right. No, that's absurd. The reason that they could be in this place of stalwart faith that would not be moved to the left or right and didn't have to inflict judgment on people who were torturing them is because they knew that God is and was and always will be this glorious and terrifying being. Now listen, believing that God is this way as he is is not something to relish in. You don't relish in the judgment on others. In fact, when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, wrongly tortured by people that he loved, he didn't just say, oh, God will, God will judge you. God will judge you. He'll vindicate me. He, he was, took it a step further because Jesus knew at that moment that he was a terrifying glorious, wonderful, holy being that was purposefully laying down his glory in that moment to show the glory of his mercy. He knew he was this person that had the power to send a legion of angels to destroy his enemy. And he didn't just say, oh, I'm going to get you. What did he say when they're nailing his hands? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What are you suffering today? Are you suffering terror emotionally, physically? Are you suffering wrong? 
in our culture, do we suffer some of us more than others? Real, systemic injustice? Absolutely we do. The best thing that we have is not any improvements we can make in our society today. But the best improvements we can make in ourselves, in our society, is to trust in the God who is and who was and who always will be. And when we trust in him to to see the world differently and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God is terrifying. And I can have a world-conquering, sin-defeating hope today because I know that God is unchanging. I know that God is terrifying. And I know, number three, God is tender. See, the mystery is he's not just terrifying, but he's tender. Verses 16 and 17. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let me commentate that this was an appropriate response. This John knew Jesus, suffered for Jesus. He, he had grown for decades and decades in understanding and grasping the mystery of this glorious Jesus. And yet, a glimpse of what he saw was enough to render him a dead man. And I'm saying, that's appropriate. That's appropriate. Because any ounce of sin in John in that moment could not be in presence with his glorious being without being tenderly washed. So listen to what happens after this. He fell to his feet as though dead. I fell to his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, you're not that bad of a guy. No, he didn't say that. It says, fear not, I am the first and the last the living one. Fear not, I am. And before getting into that mysterious thing that he said, how about just the fact that he went down to this man who was on his face, as good as dead, and tenderly put his hand on him. I think context-wise too, the verse we just read, remember, I turned and I saw in his right hand he held the seven stars. And I wonder, I, this, I have to be careful with Revelation chapter 1 because which, is the, 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 which persons of the Trinity are acting here? I don't know, but I wonder if the same person holding the stars in his right hand in this moment took the same right hand and tenderly affirmed and lifted up his beloved child. How can the same God that is is so glorious that he requires the holiest of men to fall at their face as though dead, that glorious be the same God that tenderly lifts up this child? The same God that holds the 
seven stars in his right hand is the same God who will take his hand and lift you up when you're struggling. He's terrifying, but he's tender. Fear not, I am. Jesus taught us to pray to God something that was revolutionary, the the Lord's Prayer. But even just how we address God, we could wonder the mystery of for centuries and centuries. He taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. You see, he's, he's terrifying and he's tender. He's in heaven. And he's our Father. We should never get used to the scandal of how amazing this mystery and this paradox is. He's our Father and he's in heaven. He's glorious and he's tender. Don't Don't get over that. The God who lifts up John is the God who burns with glory. When when we celebrate Father's Day, I understand that it's difficult for many of us. And I would argue that's because Father means something. Some of us are suffering the pain of a broken relationship with our father. Some of us are suffering the pain of no relationship with our father. Some of us are suffering because we had a great relationship with our father who's now dead. And we deal with the pain in different ways. We we process the pain openly. Some suppress the pain and think we're strong as a result. But father is important and father hurts. Father wounds hurt because Father is important. Let me just give you an example. If, if a car salesman acted other than how he should, it would bother you. It, it might ruin your day at worst. But because a car salesman isn't that much, that important in the grand scheme of life, it probably won't do worse. Now, if your friend acted not like a friend should, it might be worse. If your spouse acted like they shouldn't, even worse, if your father acts like he shouldn't, you, you're at, in danger of not only experiencing life the way you should, but not seeing God the way you should. Why? Because the father is important. So on the other hand, that's why this is also so powerful. When Jesus redeems friendship, it's wonderful. When Jesus redeems and takes back marriage, It's even better. But when Jesus redeems and restores you to how you should see him as father and thus see other fathers the way that he redeems, it is a glorious thing. He is terrifying and glorious, but he's also infinitely tender like a father. And the glorious thing is that this father, glorious being, is with me. And I am his son through faith. In Jesus, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I have strong faith or my, you know, I have good understanding about that. No, because you are with me. 
you are with me. I think about the nights when I was a kid, when I was just, uh, I, I couldn't sleep at night. I was scared of the dark or whatever. When a more powerful person than me was in that room with me, something was different. And that shows us that no matter what we go through, around us, what's facing us, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is with me, what valley of the shadow of death is that fearsome? I can have world-conquering, sin-defeating hope because God is unchanging and terrifying and tender. And finally, God is life-giving. See, you can be, someone can be tender, but if in their tenderness they don't have the power to bring life to you, what use is it? When my stepdad was dying, I was able to speak tenderly to him. But I couldn't bring him new life. I entrusted my words and his life to the one who brings life. Jesus is the one who brings life. Fear not, I am, verse 17, the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Because of the glory of who God is, it doesn't matter what's locked up in your life or how many times you've tried to unlock it and open it and stop this habit or get right with yourself or turn over a new leaf and failed. He is the life giver and the one who can bring life to the darkest places in your life. He holds the keys to death and Hades.